what a service we've had so far. You know, God is a good God, and we haven't yet got to the main course. But Haggai is a fairly short book, uh, just two chapters. We're just going to look at the first chapter uh, now briefly uh, as we just go through some of these things. We've been going through, of course, the minor prophets, uh, looking at them and their ministry, obviously to Judah, to Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. When we look at Haggai, uh, it's 518 BC. That's the year that this is recorded. This is after the exile, after the Jews had returned from Babylon. Now we know from the accounts in scripture uh, through Ezra, through Nehemiah, only around 50,000 Jews returned to the land. Uh, just a small number. A number did stay in Babylon or further afield. Of course, we know that Daniel stayed in Babylon. Um, the likes of Esther and her family had stayed away from Israel. Uh, and the Lord, of course, used them where they were. But just a small remnant returned to the land. So Haggai is one of three, what we often refer to as post-exile prophets. Zechariah and Malachi being the other two who we will shortly get on to. They're the last two books of the Old Testament. Haggai's name means my festival or kind of a short celebration. It's kind of the idea of his name. And it's quite fitting in a sense. Um, he has a really short prophetic career. Not because he's not good at it. It's simply because the Lord just gives him a message to come and deliver. And for about four months is all we see of Haggai speaking to the nation. But what an impact he has in that time. He turns the nation's heart back to God. Really, really profound impact. And again, he comes onto the scene at the right time, at the right place. Uh, God just raises him up in the midst of what was a really depressing time for Israel. I'm sure you are familiar with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and you find the accounts of uh, Samballat and Tobiah and others who just tried so hard to hinder any work uh, of rebuilding that Israel wanted to do. These are people that have been brought into the land. Typically, the Assyrian kings had moved people into Israel, um, non-Jews, and they'd become kind of residents in the land. <coughs> and they tried to discourage Israel. In fact, they even sought injunctions from the Persian kings to stop Israel rebuilding. So the nation had become somewhat disillusioned. They'd be back in the year in the land for 19 years by the time we get to Haggai. And there was must have been that excitement as they returned of, you know, rebuilding the cities, rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, and nothing had happened. We'll talk about it in a second in a bit more detail. But when we look at the a breakdown again. We've got those three historical books that fit after the exile of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And then the three prophetic books that we mentioned there, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Just looking at this on a timeline, we've gone through the book of Nahum, of course, deals with the fall of Assyria. That took place in 612. And then Daniel is taken away to Babylon in the first of three sieges uh, by Nebuchadnezzar in 606 BC. That leads on to then Belshazzar becoming the, the king in Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar and his son pass off the scene. Belshazzar, his grandson, uh, becomes king. Uh, and that leads to that writing on the wall incident that you're familiar with as he takes these vessels that have been used in the temple in Jerusalem and then uses them in their revelry, in their party, 
Uh, and of course, that's when that writing on the wall occurs. And it's on that occasion, uh, 539 BC, when um, Cyrus's general, uh, we believe from history, is a man by the name of Guberu. Um, we know him in, in the Bible as uh, Darius or Darius. Um, he comes onto the, the scene. Uh, this is the, the individual that we have, Daniel in the lion's den. That's the, the, the Darius uh, in question. Um, and he kind of conquers. He's um, uh, Cyrus's general. He conquers Babylon without even a battle. Uh, and just uh, we see, see the Babylonian Empire fall and the Medo-Persian Empire come onto the world scene. Well, we jump forward a little bit in time. We come down to Artaxerxes, uh, this decree, this really significant decree. That is when this official permission is granted for the rebuilding of the walls and everything around Jerusalem. Not the temple, but the walls and everything else. And that's a trigger for the prophecy that Daniel receives from Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9. And so that's when that occurs. And then we go on through history. And then, of course, the Medo Empire, Medo Persian Empire falls and the Greek Empire rises to prominence. And, of course, you're all familiar with Alexander the Great and so on. So just a little bit of the, the history of kind of where we are. Now, from the captivity perspective, this is, I suppose, more pertinent to the situation. The first siege, as we said, was 606 BC. The second siege was in 597 BC. So Daniel was taken away to Babylon. In the first siege, and the princes of Israel, or Judah as it was. And then the second siege, Ezekiel and others were taken away captive. And then we finally get to that third siege after Zedekiah, the final king of Judah, rebels. Finally, after uh, 11 years reigning, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar then sends an army. And uh, for a number of years, they kind of laid siege. And they finally destroy uh, Jerusalem, and they burn the temple and everything else. The first siege, though, triggers a period of 70 years. Now, this had been prophesied by Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29.10 said, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. Now, notice this is specifically regarding the people. Okay, this is often referred to as the servitude of the nation. Okay, so it's about the people. And God says that he would bring the people back to their land after 70 years. Now, astonishingly, we shouldn't be surprised, but it is to the day. To the day those 70 years are fulfilled. And that's when we find that Cyrus signs a decree allowing the Jews to return home. We can go to the British Museum. You can see the steel of Cyrus, as it's known. It's this cylinder, and there's this uh, Sanskrit inscription around the outside of it. Uh, and on there, Cyrus speaks of allowing the captives to return to their homes and so on. And, this, of course, that's exactly what took place in 537 uh, BC. There's another period of 70 years, though, that begins from the third siege, now, the third siege is when the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was sacked. And that 70-year period is referred to as the desolations of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah also spoke of that. This is, they're not the, they don't run, they, they overlap, but they start at different points. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 25.11, he says, and this whole land, so notice a specific statement here, the land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, 70 years. There's two periods of 70 years. Very, very significant for other reasons as well. 
which we won't get into this morning. We may come back at some point. But um, that decree ends, or that, that period ends, with this decree of Darius. And this is where Haggai steps onto the scene. It's exactly the right moment. Now, did Haggai even know this? I don't know. But at the right moment, at the right time, and we've spoken this morning of how God knows exactly what he's doing to the very day. And at the right moment, as this period of 70 years concludes, Haggai steps onto the scene and we see an incredible transformation. And we'll talk about that as we go through. So just to give you a little bit of historical background, some of you may like history, some may not, but it's just helpful just to get the, the flow of things. So we know that Nebuchadnezzar kind of ruled Babylon and his son and grandson and so on. Then Cyrus becomes the, the kind of ruler of the entire empire. Okay, this becomes now from the Babylonian Empire, becomes the Persian Empire. And that's when the Jews in 537 return to their homeland. And so this Darius or Guberu uh, is the one who's given the, uh, the, the control of Babylon specifically but under Cyrus. So he sits under Cyrus. Cyrus's son, and Cambyses, then comes to the throne. Uh, that's the one that's mentioned in the book of Ezra. And this is where work on the temple is stopped. So they get back into them. They start to do things, but then they're abruptly halted by these people in the land that want to stop any attempt of the Jews rebuilding their homeland. Sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? And then we go on, and there's this kind of imposter has somehow got onto the throne, uh, but only for eight months by the name of Smyrdes. And then we get on to uh, Darius the Great, as he's known. I, forgive me, I will say Darius, and I will say Darius. Um, and my mum picks me up on this, and I, I don't know which it should be, and I'll say both. So just forgive me, it's going to be one or the other. I think it depends whether you're American or not, because um, I listen to a lot of American commentaries. So if it's like Darius, then it's probably American, it's Darius, bear with me. Okay, so uh, this individual anyway, uh, and this is again, his king is mentioned in the book of Ezra, chapter 424. So he comes to the throne in 520 BC. He's then followed by Xerxes, who is the king that we read about in the book of Esther. And then we finally come on to Artaxerxes Longimanus, and he's the one that's significant because that's the king that signs the decree, again mentioned in Daniel 9, that allows the rebuilding of the walls. So there's a gradual progression in terms of Israel being able to rebuild things. But the one we're really interested in right now is this one here, Darius the Great. That's the period of time. So let's just jump into the book of Haggai, and you'll hopefully see some of these things then uh, connecting. We're told, in the second year of Darius the king, so he's been there 520, so you can do the maths, we're counting down, it's B.C., So it's 518 now is the year. In the sixth month, in the first day of the month, just make a mental note of that because that will be significant at the end of the chapter. So the second year of Darius the king. Now we're just going to quickly detour because I want to just take you a few things. The dating is reckoned from a Gentile king. Now that's interesting because up until now in the Bible, as we've gone through the Old Testament, the dating is always reckoned by the Jewish kings. But now, as we start the book of Haggai, the dating is reckoned by the Gentile king. So that's our marker. It's in the second year of this Gentile. Why? Well, because we're now in the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21, 24, Jesus uses that expression. The times of the Gentiles. And this is a time that God is allowing the Gentiles to be brought in. But it's also a time where Israel will be subservient to Gentile rule. There will come a time that that time of the Gentiles will end. There will come a time when Israel will no longer be 
under the thumb of the nations, as it were. And there will come a time where all of the Gentiles who will be saved will be brought in. And we're told very clearly that that's when Israel's eyes will be opened again. For now, blindness has been pronounced upon the nation. That time of the Gentiles began in 606 BC with that first siege of Jerusalem that we mentioned. Babylon, of course, incredibly large empire, but it's totally eclipsed by then the Persian empire that then follows it. And that's the, the, the period of time that we're kind of in at this, this moment as we get into Haggai. So, again, just from a chronological perspective, Cyrus signs that decree in 537 BC. The Jews return home, as we said, just about 50,000 of them. Nothing is done regarding the temple for around two years. And then we read this. This is in Ezra, chapter 3, verse 8. Now, in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests, and the Levites, and all they that were coming out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. It looks great. It looks like they're finally back after two years, just getting themselves sorted out, and they're going to start the work on the house of the Lord. But the next five years are troublous times. Exactly what Gabriel said to Daniel would take place. And we read in Ezra 4, the first five verses. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel. And by the way, he was of the royal line. He should have been the next king. But God had already said to them that they would abide many days without a king. The next king, well, they're still waiting because it will be the Messiah. Okay, the crown was taken to Babylon with Zedekiah. And the crown remained in Babylon for some 500 years until a group of magi, whose job it was to appoint kings, traveled back to Israel. And they go to the palace, to Herod, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And they effectively bring the crown back from Babylon at that point. And Jesus is acknowledged as being the rightful king. Of course, we're waiting for him to come and sit on the throne. But keep watching because any day now. Okay, so these enemies of the Jews, um, they come to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, let us build with you. They want to say, well, let us help. Of course, they, they don't really have an interest in helping the Jews. They were just trying to muscle in. He says, for we seek your God. Well, probably they didn't, uh, as you do. Well, that's certainly not true. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esher Haddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. So there you have the reference that these people living in the land have been brought there by the Assyrian kings. Typically what the Assyrian kings would do is take people from different geographical areas and shift them, move them somewhere else. And it just kind of kept them in check, in a sense. Uh, it was a very common practice of the Assyrian kings. Verse 3 goes on, But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. Yeah, I make a very clear distinction. You know, just because people refer to God doesn't necessarily mean that we're all speaking about the same character, the same person. Okay, we, we speak about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, a lot of people in the world speak about God or worshiping God. It may, may well not be the same God. We need to clarify if we're conversations with people, they say, well, I believe in God. Well, which God do you believe in? 
But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel. Notice they clarify who they're serving. We build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Again, referring back to the decree that had been signed, allowing them to return to home and rebuild. Then the people of the land, so these are uh, Tobiah, Sambala, and these other individuals, weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. They weakened their hands. They discouraged them. They talked about the problems. They, they, they're threatening them. And hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes, and they were successful. And it says all the, the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So there's those successive kings. All through this period of time, Israel were not able to rebuild. So Cyrus' son Cambyses becomes king, as we saw a moment ago, 530 BC. And the Samaritans seize that opportunity. They petition Cambyses regarding the Jews, and he calls a halt to the work. And that lasts for another 12 years, bringing us to 518 BC. Just look at the numbers there. So we're starting at 537, and we're counting down, obviously 2 plus 5 plus 12 gives us our 19 years. That's the gap, that's the interval. Okay. We find, of course, when we look at the dates of these things, there is some symmetry. Uh, and it's fascinating when you realize that these prophecies, and we have talked about this before, and we won't go into it in detail, but linked in with what Ezekiel prophesies, these work out as being fulfilled. So the, the servitude of the nation is fulfilled ultimately in 1948. And the desolations of Jerusalem is fulfilled 19 years later in 1967. There's an incredible precision in this prophecy. We, we have touched on those things before. We will go over it again sometime. But again, it's just you see God working. But let's, let's get on, on track with what's going on with, with what Haggai's saying. So again, this first verse. just want to highlight then these individuals that are, high, are mentioned here. Zerubbabel, his name means sown in Babylon. That, that's really where he'd lived his life. He was the grandson of Jehoiachin. He was of the royal line, as we mentioned. And again, he's become appointed by Cyrus to be the governor of Judah. Joshua, as mentioned here, or Yeshua, was the son of Josedek, who was the high priest at the time of the Babylonian invasion. And so there's a real continuity, both pre the captivity and then following the exile as they come back into the land. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, that this is Haggai speaking God's words, this people say, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. They were making excuses for not doing the Lord's work. You know, they were discouraged, they were frightened, they were intimidated by the world. And so they weren't doing the things of God. What were they doing? Well, they were focusing on their own things. Again, they were back in the land, but had settled for something other than God's best. Why? Because of lack of trust. They'd forgotten that God is the God who led them across the Red Sea that defeated Jericho. The walls had come down. That They defeated those giant tribes in the land. And the incredible things that God had done for the nation, providing and protecting and supporting them. And now they're back in the land. And these, well, not even... In terms of the biblical scale, if you talk about some of the villains that are highlighted in Scripture, you know, Sambalat and Tobiah, they don't even rate very highly on the scale, and yet they've done enough to intimidate the people, so much so that they weren't prepared to 
get on with this work of rebuilding. See, man's word had prevailed over God's word. So then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you, O ye, specifically pointing at the people now, to dwell in your sealed houses? What does that mean? Well, they paneled the inside of their houses with cedar wood. What's significant about that? Well, most commentators are in agreement that the wood that was used to panel their own houses had been destined for the temple. The temple originally, Solomon's temple, had cedar wood inside it, inside the, the, the building, overlaid in gold. And it seems that they'd got back, they'd started the project, they got some of the things in place, they started to get the wood ready, but then they'd become discouraged. And so they'd used the things of God's house for their own benefit. And so the, the challenge, is it time for you, oh ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, your paneled houses, and this house, God's house, lie waste? Now therefore, thus does the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And that is the challenge of this book. Look at the way you are living your life. Look at what you think is important. Look at what you are sowing to. So he's addressing the people. Again, this word destined for the temple. And really that your ways is set your heart on the way you should go. Is really the implication there. It's which course have you charted for your life? Are you walking in your way, or if I may, are you walking in God's way? And then Haggai, the Lord says to Haggai, you have so much and bring in little. Oh, you've tried hard. You've done lots of stuff. But what have you got out of it? Do you know, I'm becoming more and more convinced. I'm so grateful for something that Diana sent me, which we put up on one of the emails a little while ago. It was a comment by Derek Prince. And it was so apt for my personal situation at that time. But I see it more and more now that unless God is the alpha, don't expect him to be the omega. Unless God initiates, then God has no obligation to complete. And these people here were doing their thing. They were setting about their own business. And it wasn't blessed. And they were wondering why. God says, you so much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe, uh, you clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it in a bag with holes. You see, they, they were doing all the right stuff in a sense, but they were getting nothing out of it. It wasn't benefiting them. Everything was difficult for them. Why? Well, because they weren't seeking first the kingdom of God. They were seeking first their own kingdoms, as it were. Again, it's the consequences of misappropriated resources. And it led to this unexplained failure, as far as they're concerned. Haggai now nailed it and says exactly what the problem really is. It's the result of the best we can bring. You can't bring the best of your offering and expect God to bless it. Go back to Cain and Abel. Oh, Cain just brought a wonderful crop of the things that he'd done. It was the best he could possibly bring. Not good enough before a holy God. There's nothing we can bring before a holy God. In fact, we're told in Isaiah that our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's, it's offensive to God when we try and bring him the best we can. And, and this is in a sense what the people were doing. They were doing their own thing. 
and wanting God to bless. Now, Jesus again said that we should seek first. Let me just read from Matthew 6, 25 onwards. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Now, I have to just interject this quote from, with a quote from Oswald Chambers. He says this, take no thought for your life. Be careful about one thing only, says our Lord, your relationship to me. Common sense shouts loud and says, oh, that's absurd. I must consider how I'm going to live. I must consider what I'm going to eat and drink. Jesus says you must not. Beware of allowing the thought that this statement is made by one who does not understand our particular circumstances. Jesus Christ knows our circumstances better than we do. And he says we must not think about these things so as to make them the one concern of our life. Whenever there is competition, be sure that you put your relationship to God first. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, we know the scripture. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank him for his answers. If you do this, you'll experience God's peace. That's the Living Bible paraphrase. I like that. We had it on a plaque at home when I was young. And I saw it every morning. I came downstairs and I saw it and I read it and I read it. But it's so true. God says, don't worry. And what do we spend most of our time doing? Worrying. What happens if... The Lord's taught me over the last year, worry won't help you. You know, I had some, some days and I got up and I was stressed. My family will tell you this. I was stressed. And I was like, what, 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 we got to, what are we going to do? And, you know, I had other days I got up and I just felt a real peace. I was like, just, Lord, I'm just going to trust you. I'll just leave this with you. And, and it, it became more and more the case. And certainly the last, I, I suppose, since Christmas onwards, there, there was a point somewhere over Christmas, I don't have quite have a meltdown, but I just, you know, threw my toys out of the pram a little bit, didn't I? We had a moment. And it just got really too much because I was trying to figure out what I could do. But as we've gone into this year, I've just become more and more at peace, just trusting that God has got this. And in fact, it, it came from more of that time when I started kind of just giving up my attempts to do anything. And it's so illogical to the human mind, but what is it that God tells us to do? Don't worry, but pray. Again, I love that phrase also Chambers says it was written a moment ago. Don't think that, that comes from someone who doesn't understand. God does understand. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches by glory in Christ Jesus. Was Paul wrong? Can God supply all of your need? By the way, this study, these slides I'd put together some time ago, before the events of this last week. So this isn't just something I've put together for this morning. It just happens to be the Lord's timing, that these things fit perfectly with the things we've already shared today. Oswald Chambers again says, suppose that God, that God is the God you know him to be when you are nearest to him. What an impertinent worry is. How we've proven that in our own lives. Let the attitude of the life be a continual going out in dependence upon God and your life will have an ineffable charm about it, which is a satisfaction to Jesus. Again, think of how great God is when everything's going well, when you know you're blessed and walking in the way and so on. Well, God's like that all the time. The difference is that we sometimes look at the waves and the water around us and then we begin to sink. Jesus, back into Matthew 6, carries on and says, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. 
Your heavenly Father feeds them. Don't you know much better than they? I mean, look this time of year. Look at all the birds that are flying around. We've got a bird box at the back of the house. And there's little birds flying in and out. It's beautiful. It's lovely to watch them. God provides for them. He cares for them. Well, how much more does he care for you? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Again, Oswald Chambers comment says, a warning which needs to be reiterated is that the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in will choke all that God puts in. We are never free from the recurring tides of this encroachment. If it does not come on the line of clothes and food, it will come on the line of money or lack of money, or of friends or lack of friends, or on the line of difficult circumstances. It is one steady encroachment all the time. And unless we allow the Spirit of God to raise up the standard against it, these things will come in like a flood. Jesus carries on in Matthew 6 and says, Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we, shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. Another comment of Oswald Chambers said, If we undertake work for God and get out of touch with him, the sense of responsibility will be overwhelmingly crushing. But if we roll back on God that which he has put on us, he takes away the sense of responsibility by bringing in the realization of himself. And I would say to you, and I've experienced this so many times over the last year, that when you get out of step with God, when you start looking at the waves and the water and everything else, that responsibility becomes overwhelmingly crushing. But when we roll it back on God, what a peace. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. It doesn't say on some occasions you can cast your burden, or you know maybe once or twice, but don't trouble the Lord too much. It says, cast thy burden, whenever. And he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. And then this quote from Matthew 6, we're going to include it here. It says, But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What does it say? Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be sorted out. What were the people in Haggai's time not doing? They weren't seeking first the things of God. They were seeking first their own things. You know, Everything we need in this life and the next, if we simply trust and seek him. So verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now he's been asked before, what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake? What are we doing regarding God's kingdom? What are you doing to build the house of the Lord? That was the question in a sense that Haggai's asking the people, you know, you've built your own houses, you've sorted all that out, maybe not successfully, but what about the Lord's house? What are you doing? Well, it's interesting because in the New Testament many times we are spoken of, the church is spoken of as being a spiritual house. Peter, 1 Peter 2.5 says, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. That means we are stones next to each other in this building a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 
Very similar statement from Paul this time. Verse 19 to 22. Now, therefore, you are no more, more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for habitation of God through the Spirit. You see, the call in Habakkuk's day was to the people to consider God's house, not your own, because your own house will be blessed if you put God's house first. Verse 8 of Haggai chapter 1, Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, says the Lord. Very clear. God says, look, you're going to be blessed if you simply Walk with me. Do what I'm asking you to do. Again, what part do you play? Where do you fit into this great house that God is building? We are living stones. We are in this together, but we're all supposed to be building each other up and working together in this house. Yeah, it's interesting you think, you know, who are you next to in the house? Now, we're not going to necessarily know the side of eternity, but in the picture that was painted in the New Testament, you are seated next to other stones, and sometimes God may put you next to a, a jaggedy stone. Why? Well, because you are to, to help that individual. You know, often we don't get put next to the people we would always choose to be. The church is a strange group of people, is it not? You know, we, we wouldn't necessarily choose to associate or spend time with each other. But we have this one thing in common, and that is Jesus Christ. And it, it removes every other barrier that's there. But still, we have different personalities and different people, and we, we have to learn to grow and learn from each other. But also, whom do you support? I just want to read just some interesting things, just to help you think about your ministry in regard to the body of Christ. Soon after his conversion, Billy Graham's mother set aside a period every day to pray solely for Billy and the calling she believed was his. She continued those prayers, never missing a day, for seven years until Billy was well on his way as a preacher and an evangelist. His mother then based her prayers on 2 Timothy 2.15, asking that what he preached would meet with God's approval. Wow. Do we pray like that? Leroy Ems of the Navigator staff had a godly friend whose mother prayed one hour each day for him since he was born. Now these are some examples of parents praying for children. How much do we pray for each other and for what the Lord is doing in our midst? Jeannie Hendricks, wife of Dallas Theological, Theological Seminary Professor Howard Hendricks, spent a season of intense prayer for one of her children. During his late adolescence, her son went through what Jeannie called a blackout period. He was unenthusiastic, moody, depressed, communicating only with single-syllable responses. And she says, this was one of the most traumatic times of my life. He was so far from the Lord and from us, I felt like the devil himself was out to get my child. I prayed as I never had before. During the half year when this situation continued, she covenanted with God to give up her noon meal. And she fasted each day. She prayed for her son for one hour until God broke through to him. Do you remember we said the other week, every time there's, an un, there's a wait, there's an until in there. God is always faithful. And do you see how powerful prayer is? Dr. and Mrs. James Dobson 
Some of you may have heard of them. Uh, American uh, ministry focusing very much on the family. They fast and pray for their children one day a week. Harry Ironside, who was a former pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, had a mother who never ceased to pray for his salvation. Throughout his life, Harry would recall the substance of her pleas to God for him. Father, save my boy early. Keep him from ever desiring anything else than to live for thee. Oh, Father, make him willing to be kicked and cuffed to suffer shame or anything else for Jesus' name. Her prayers were answered. Chuck Smith tells this story. He says, a few months before I was born, my sister, for all practical purposes, had died. She had stopped breathing. Her pulse had stopped. Her eyes had rolled back in her head. Her jaw had set. There was no signs of life. My mother, who had just recently accepted Jesus Christ, grabbed my sister and ran to the church, which was only a couple of blocks from where they were living. There in the parsonage, she laid out that limp, lifeless body, and the pastor began to pray. He said, Mrs. Smith, get your eyes off your little daughter and get your eyes on Jesus. Hard to do in a situation like that. She looked up to the Lord and said, Lord, if you will give me my daughter back, I will serve you all my life. I will give myself to you. I will go into the ministry. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just give me my little daughter back. God touched my sister and healed her instantly. As a result of the miracle in my sister, my father came to Jesus Christ. So a few months later, when I was born, my dad went down the hospital hallway singing, Praise the Lord, it's a boy. And my mother prayed and said, Oh God, I will fulfill my vow to you, Lord. Through this son you have given me, or given to me. And there she dedicated my life unto the Lord. Chuck Smith says, I did not know about this. I grew up as a normal boy doing normal things, interested in athletics and sports. I decided that I wanted to be a doctor. I started taking my pre-med courses. One summer I went to camp and God spoke to my heart and gave me a call to the ministry. I came home and shared it with my mother and said, I'm going to transfer over to the theology course. She just smiled and said, that's fine, son. I think that's good. So I went on and finished my courses and started ministering. I always had been athletic, captain of the football team and baseball team, etc. And I really thought I had an awful lot to offer. I was strong. I was athletic. I had lots of ideas. I had all kinds of energy. And I was going to go out and turn the world upside down for our Lord. The Lord let me labor and use up all my ideas and all my energy and all my talents and abilities and nothing. Absolutely nothing. I became so discouraged. I was so defeated, passing the prime of my youth, losing a lot of my energy, giving up on most of my ideas. One day I just I tried just about every program I could think of to get people into church. And I was at a minister's conference. I went back to my hotel room and got down before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to me and gave me this scripture. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And then the scripture, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So I encourage you to pray. Pray for your children. If they don't know the Lord, keep praying for them. Pray for each other. The Lord can do an incredible work in our midst if we just put the kingdom of God first. Again, Haggai 1.9 goes on and says, You look for much, and lo, it came to little. When you brought it home, I did blow on it. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Why would God do that? Because of mine house that is waste. And you run every man unto his own house. As I've shared with you this morning, God did not bless any of my own initiatives in the last year. 
God was true to his word at the very beginning. And God did something that I could never have done. You see, God wanted to get their attention. Yeah, and has it been hard recently for you, for whatever situation or circumstance? Have things been unusually difficult? Well, again, look what God is saying. Get your eyes upon me. Focus upon my house. You know, never has the house been in more need of repair than now as we look at the church in this country. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, the earth is stayed from her fruit. It's very similar to the words that we saw in Habakkuk, isn't this? And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn, upon the new wine, upon the oil and upon the ground that bringeth forth, and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of thy hands. It's pretty much everything, isn't it? Everything we can do. Nothing. Unless God blesses the work. Unless God builds a house, the labor is in vain. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, listen, look at this, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Zerubbabel, as we said, means born in Babylon. Shiltiel, I asked of God. Yeshua, salvation is of the Lord. Jehozadek, Jehovah righted and Haggai festival. There's a pattern there. You know, we may have that born in Babylon experience. So much of the world has impacted our lives. But we ask of God, we find that salvation is of the Lord and Jehovah is proved right. And then it's time for the festival. It's time to step out and walk that walk with the Lord that is doubly blessed. You know, Psalm 119 begins with two promises of blessing, the doubly blessed life. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they. They keep his commandments. You know, the double blessing was always reserved for the firstborn in the family. And God promises that double blessing to you if you walk before him. Then spoke Haggai, the Lord's messenger in the Lord. Uh, 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 let me try it again. Then spoke Haggai, the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, "Isn't this wonderful? I am with you," says the Lord. God doesn't expect you to to go out and just try and do anything on your own. God is saying, "I am with you." Again, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. See that challenge to step out in faith with Him is so great. We need that personal assurance. But God says, "I'm with you." And for the Jews, it meant facing the threat of their enemies head on. But God was more than able to deal with that. What was going to happen? Well, again, without God, they could be destroyed. But God says, I'm with you. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord their God. And I notice what the chapter ends with. Verse 15. In the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Darius the king. Do the maths. That's just 24 days. 24 days is all it took. Haggai comes, preaches, consider your ways. And suddenly... This building project that had lied dormant for 19 years. Now, of course, God had already 
foretold this. It had been prophetically decreed. At the right time, he comes onto the scene. Haggai preaches his message and the people respond. 24 days, they go from being fearful and afraid to being a people who are intent on building God's house. I'll continue it from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that there are so many real examples of people just like us who struggled, who failed, who were discouraged, who tried to do things their own way, tried to build their own houses, who got that experience of everything we seem to do falls apart. Lord, we, we build and we put money into pockets with holes. And, but Lord, you know all these things. And Lord, here we have a clear statement in your word that tells us to seek first of the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added. Oh Lord, help us to learn this lesson. To Lord, just to step out in faith with you. Just to realize how remarkable, how wonderful this journey of faith really can be if we learn to trust you every step. That you will provide for us. You will give us all that we need. If we seek you first, Lord, impress these things upon our hearts. We ask this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen.